So lovely to uh, be with you this morning, share sweet fellowship and the worship, and uh, I pray that that will continue now as we fellowship in the Word of God together. So we're in Hebrews. I bring greetings from your sister in Fordingbridge, <laughs> um, and Karen as well says hi, she can't be uh, with us this morning because um, she's busy over in Fordingbridge on the rotors over there. Are you enjoying your study of Hebrews? Oh, yeah. yes. Good. I hope that you are. It's a great book. Um, there's, uh, you know, lots and lots in it. And, um, yeah, I just want you to be excited, really. Do please be reading ahead. Do please get to know uh, the passages, you know, as we take them, as we go through them. Um, but be reading ahead so that you're familiar um, with the, the passage before we preach on it. So um, today we're going from uh, just the end of chapter 5, verse 11, through to the end of chapter 6. Now, the, the book, you know, I hope just to kind of remind you really, so this book is written to that first generation of Jews that were around, you know, when uh, Jesus um, was here, um, you know, physically. Um, they are the generation to receive the Messiah, um, and they are the generation from whom the first Christians are being drawn. Um, we know that this book is written before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, so it's written within within the first sort of 40 years, really, um, of uh, Jesus' resurrection. And what the author is attempting to do is to write to uh, this generation and explain to them that the old covenant that they've known so well um, was merely a shadow, a foreshadowing of the new covenant that has now come. He talks about moving from shadow to substance. He says that um, the old covenant was, you know, like you, you know, if you can imagine me walking towards you with a light behind me, there's a shadow cast in front that gives you an impression, that gives you an idea, that gives you some information. But clearly, once I arrive, you know, you'd be foolish to be spending much attention on the shadow. Um, and that's what he's trying to say to them. The old covenant was a foreshadowing. Now the substance of the new covenant is here. And indeed, there's some prophecy in here as well because he's also saying, now that the new has come, the old is obsolete and is ready to be swept away. And of course, that's what happened in 70 AD. There was a, uh, well, we'll get to that later on. That's fine. So shadow to substance. Um, and it's, it, that's the generation that he's writing to. Um, now, in this particular passage, we have a pause in the narrative. So um, at the beginning of chapter 5, um, up to this point, um, he's talking about Jesus Christ as the new high priest. And so verse 10 here, talking about Jesus being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And then there is a pause. And that's what we're going to be looking at, this interlude. And it picks up again at the beginning of chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem and John is going to be bringing you that message next week. So we're in this little bit of an interlude, and this interlude has got three sections to it. There is a 
rebuke, really, to the readers of this from uh, chapter 5, verse 11, down to about uh, 6, 3. Uh, Then there is a warning, a very stern and terrifying warning, which we'll look at. That takes us up to verse 8. And then from verse 9 to the end, we've got some uh, encouragement. So I'm going to take it in those three sections. um, And we'll start with that first section. So verse uh, verse 11, then, of chapter 5. Concerning him, that is concerning Melchizedek, we have much to say... But it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. I'm reading here from the New American Standard. You'll have slightly different phrases depending on what versions you're you're reading from. You have become dull of hearing, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. Everyone who partakes of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant, but solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about Christ, let us press on to maturity. So if you want any kind of title or theme for this, it's pressing on to maturity. Let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance and dead works, faith towards God, instructions about washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So, dull of hearing. He says you have become dull of hearing. Slow to learn, lazy, sluggish is another word used. No energy, no excitement, no zeal. How are you when it comes to studying the Word of God? Is there an excitement? Is there a zeal? Is there an energy? Or is it all just very tedious and boring and, oh, no, we're not going over the gospel again, are we? Oh, no. So just check your hearts on this, okay? Don't become dull of hearing. Um, Then there's this metaphor about food, needing milk and not solid food. It's a rebuke. He says you ought to be on the meat of the word by now, but we're still having to go over the milk. Now, obviously, when you are a new believer, you start on the milk. That's good stuff. Drink it all in. But the consequence of absorbing that milk is that you grow stronger, you you mature, you grow up. And, uh, you know, then you're able to move on to um, meatier things. So um, he says, you know, instead of being teachers by now, you ought to be able to teach the new believers coming in. But instead of that, I'm having to teach you like you're a new believer. Where are you at in your walk with God? Do you, do you know your way around the scriptures? Are you familiar with that? Can you grasp some of the bigger themes, especially the New Testament stuff. Can you grasp some of the bigger New Testament principles there? Can you live your Christian life on a day-to-day basis, feeding yourself, nourishing yourself with the Word of God, hearing God speak to you, receiving encouragement, strength, receiving correction and rebuke from the Word of God? Can you do that? Are you giving God a chance (laughs) by setting time aside to read the Bible? Find out the good ways of, 
you know, find out what works for you. I like this new American standard. If you want other versions, you go for it. Find out what's going to ring your bell and work for you. If you want to listen to the Bible on audio, driving along, stick your, your CDs on or, or your podcasts or whatever, you know, but one way or another, find out and be being fed. Be feeding yourselves. Don't be children and having to be fed, but be feeding yourselves. He talks about here the elementary principles, the ABC, the ABC of God's Word. How are you on these? He lists six uh, titles here, six, um, six titles. Repentance from dead works, faith toward God, instructions about washings, I'd say baptism. How are you on baptism? Baptism in water, laying on of hands, baptism in the Spirit. Are you good on those things? The resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Are you confident about how life ends for you in this earth and moves on to life in the spirit? Are you confident about those things? Do you know those things? You should know, you know, I don't know, half a dozen scriptures or whatever, shall I say, on each of those subjects. Where are you at on those things? If, you're, if these are foundational principles, that's what the writer here says. So, you know, get some foundations in there. If you're a bit wobbly on them, then build yourself on them. Find out about them. There's plenty of, you can ask me. I can give you a Bible study on every one of them. So ask me and I shall, I shall provide for you. Okay, so let's assume we're all good on that stuff because then we get into some of these tricky bits. The tricky bits. Chapter 6, verse 4. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God, and put him to open shame. For the ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation, useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Dire stuff. So look, before we rush into the, the big question, can I lose my salvation? Let's just think, all right? A golden rule, really, when you're looking at the Scriptures is to think, well, what did this passage mean to those who originally received it? What was the author trying to communicate to the original readers? Before we, before we leap forward and deduce what it means for us today, let's just go back and think about what was all that about? Why was he writing that? And I want us to go back um, in our minds, really. Um, if we're looking you know, back in chapters um, 3 and 4, um, then the author brings us back to that first generation of Jews who came out of Egypt. That first generation, they were the Israelites, um, and uh, it, it's all recorded for you in the first 20-odd you know, chapters of Exodus. That generation was the generation that, that God was stirred toward 
when he spoke to Moses. He said, I've seen the suffering of my people, and I'm going to send you to deliver them. So God's responding to that, that generation, that suffering generation that are crying out to him. He responds to them, you know, I don't want to go through it all, but, you know, Moses in the burning bush, and then Moses is sent to the people, and then he's sent to Pharaoh, and there are ten fearful plagues that strike the Egyptians. And some of those plagues are very clearly aimed only at the Egyptians, and the Israelites, where they live, do not. That plague is not inflicted upon them. And so there's a clear separation being made, and they see they experience the, the miraculous intervention of God into their lives. This is, you know, these miracles are unprecedented. There's nothing before that in Scripture, and there's not a lot like that afterwards. They are unprecedented. Great miracles, you know, they are the ones that experience that. They are the generation who actually celebrate the Passover. They are the people who actually sacrifice that lamb and put the blood over their doorposts and they are the ones who eat that meal dressed, ready to go, with boots on and coats on, waiting. And they are the generation who the angel of death actually passed over. That's why it's called the Passover. They were the ones. And they heard the terrible wailing of the Egyptians who lost their firstborn on that night. They were the ones that went out and were caught at the shores of the Red Sea. They were the ones who actually walked through that water with walls of water on either side. They walked through that sea on dry land. They were the ones for whom the bitter water was turned fresh, for whom the water came out of the rock when they were, when they were through the desert. They're the ones for the, that the manna fell for. Moses said to them, you will see the glory of God in the morning. And in the morning, there was the manna. They're the ones who actually ate that stuff. For the rest, it was just stories. They were the ones. They came to Sinai. They were the ones where God comes down on the mountain and there is fire and earthquake and great terror and fear on them. Seventy of them are called up the mountain and they see the feet of God on a sapphire pavement, and they eat and drink to celebrate the covenant meal. It's those people, and it's those people that when it was time to come into the promised land, they were the ones who said, no, there are giants in the land, we'll all be destroyed. They were the ones who said, it would be better for us to go back to Egypt. They were the ones who picked up stones to stone Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb, who were pleading with them to be obedient to God and to enter the promised land. They were the ones who refused and who turned away. And it's with that generation that God was angry and said they will never enter the promised land. And they were the ones who the next day, when they were really sorry about what they'd done and realised what they'd done and they said, okay, well then we will enter the promised land and they appointed an army and they rode in and that army was completely slaughtered. Moses and Aaron pleaded with them not to do that but they went and those people were killed. So that's 
apostasy. That is turning away from God. When it's all laid out for you, when God says, I'm here now to to bring about what I promised to Abraham and to bring you into this promised land. And they turned away and they said, no, we would rather go back to Egypt. And so God was angry with them and then they could not enter the promised land. That's turning away, all right? That's apostasy. And so now, that is to say, in, at the point where this letter is being written to this generation, this writer of Hebrews is writing to that generation of Jews and saying, look, guys, don't make the same mistake again. The Messiah has come to you. You've seen the miracles. You've received the teaching. The Son of God has come. Everything that the Passover foreshadowed is now real in substance. The Lamb of God has been slain. Now there is forgiveness of sin. Now the Spirit of God can be poured out in your hearts and you can know God through that indwelling presence of the Spirit. He's saying now everything that was foreshadowed in the Old Covenant has now come about. Don't turn away. Don't say we'd rather have the Old Covenant. Don't say, no, we want to go back to the sacrifices. We want to go back to the priesthood. We want to go back to the old ways of doing things. Don't say in your hearts, well, this Messiah isn't the Messiah that we want. We want someone to come and deliver us from the dominion of the Romans. Don't say that Messiah won't do. He is the Son of God. How could there possibly be another Messiah? How could there possibly be a better Messiah? His blood has been shed for the forgiveness of sins. How could there possibly be a better sacrifice? And yet that is what they did, isn't it? Actually, that is what Judaism did do. Now, obviously, there were many, many individuals who were saved into Christianity and embraced that new covenant. But actually, Judaism as a whole, that generation as a whole, they did reject their Messiah. His blood be upon us and upon our children, they cried out, didn't they? Crucify him, crucify him. And as a whole, they do not recognize Jesus as their Messiah. And so now, where are they now? Because... You know, the, the, the temple was destroyed. The people were scattered. Jesus prophesied this, didn't he? Um, there was a, a tremendous, um, you know, the, 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 the Romans um, came and see, uh, there was a big siege of Jerusalem. More than a million Jews were killed in that slaughter. And the remaining two million were carried off into the, scattered across the Roman Empire into slavery. Um, And yet God is faithful. Just as God was faithful to that first generation, though they turned away, they were still fed every day with manna and every evening with quail. There was still the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. He still, you know, was faithful to them. And, you know, we can say the same today. What other people group is there around that have had, you know, that have been scattered and their identity has been obliterated, and yet, after 2,000 years, they can still be clearly identified. 
I mean, look, you know, where are the Normans amongst us and the Vikings and the Anglo-Saxons? You know, all that, that's only a thousand years ago. And all of that is smudged away, isn't it? You can't identify yourself as one or the other. Sometimes I gather archaeologists can look at the bones, look at the feet, I think, and tell, this is an Anglo-Saxon, this is a Viking, you know. The bones of the feet apparently tell it, so there you go. But basically, all of that's been obliterated, hasn't it? All of that's lost. There's no other people group that survived that long. God is still faithful to them. I'm not going to talk about eschatology. I'm going to stick with the scriptures. I'm getting on to a completely different subject. So, so therefore, now, when we read this passage here, in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the age to come. Think about all that happened with that first generation. They'd seen all of those miracles, received the law on Sinai. They had embraced all of that, and yet they turned away. And he's now saying, look, for you guys who you know, are experiencing the infilling of the Spirit, you're experiencing you know, salvation, you're understanding the gospel, you're being enlightened and opened up. Remember how Jesus spoke to them, he laid his, what did he do, for the disciples, he laid his hands on them, didn't they, and, and opened their minds to receive the Spirit and to, to understand the Word of God. There's an enlightenment that comes. He's saying, this is that generation. If you've gone that far into the new covenant, do not turn away, back to the old covenant. This falling away, parapito, it's a great, um, it's a great uh, Greek word, parapipo, Parapipto, that's it, parapipto. Um, so then, you know, this idea of being, it's impossible to renew to repentance. For that first generation, it was impossible for them to then enter the promised land. You couldn't go back afterwards. Once they turned away, you couldn't go back again. And he's warning these people that if you return to the old covenant and wait for another Messiah, <laughs> what are you waiting for? Wait for another Messiah, it's not going to happen. I want to just read to you, because um, we're just going to pick up in chapter 10 here as well. There are some, there's a nice little tricky passage in chapter 10, 26 through to 31. So we're just going to lift this one out as well. It's another one of those little interludes, so that whoever it is who's preaching on chapter 10 hasn't got to pick this one up, right? <laughs> chapter 10, 26. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant? by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now look, none of us make it through this Christian life on our own merit, on our own strength. You don't have to be a Christian for very long, really, before you realise there's a lot of 
snares, we can trip and stumble and fall very easily. We have a saviour, a great saviour who walks with us, who is so merciful, who is overflowing with forgiveness, who is able to strengthen us and to restore us and encourage us and lift us. And he does that day after day after day. When we get to heaven, we will cast our crowns before him. Now that is a crown, not a royal crown, but a crown um, of... Uh, it's like we, we will cast our medals before him. It's a crown, it's a laurel that you'd get as a, you know, as a winner uh, in, the, you know, in the old Olympic Games or whatever. Cast our medals before him. Cast our awards and our trophies before him. Cast before him any credit that you know, might have accrued to us for doing a, a good job as a Christian on earth. You know, all of that will say, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be here today. And there's a beautiful psalm, if the Lord had not been on our side, would we still be here today? If the Lord had not been on our side, would we not be swept away? Don't you, don't you know, don't you feel in your heart that actually, you know, yes, while it's good to walk strong and, and actually, unless there was a saviour walking with us, we wouldn't make it. We'd fall at the first hurdle. So I think here what we're talking about, you know, people... People get caught up in all sorts of different things. I think many people um, stop walking with God because of the church, because of hurt they've received from other Christians. They, you know, they, they jack it in. They think, you know what, it's too painful. I can't carry on. They're hurt. They're, they're, um, you know, they, there's been some misunderstanding. There's been some falling out. It's actually between us. We're the ones that cause our brothers and sisters to stumble a lot of the time. I don't think, and you know, I know, I know people you know, in that situation, I don't think they think of themselves as trampling underfoot the Son of God and insulting the Spirit of, of grace and calling unclean the blood of the covenant. A lot of the time people will say, oh, I still love God, I just hate the church. <laughs> you know, that's often the situation, isn't it? I think... Folk like that, you know. That you know, that's you know, that's our fault, and you know, we need to be reaching out to restore folk like that. But they have a God who is faithful, and often in their hearts, they will continue to revere Him. I think this is talking about, you know, again, think of that first generation. This is this is talking about people who are saying a clear no to God, and a no to the purposes of God in their lives, and a no to the promise of God. And saying that with the knowledge, having experienced walking with God, having experienced the word of God, having experienced you know, that enlightenment, having experienced the spirit of God in their hearts. It talks about people that have tasted of the powers of the age to come. So these are not, un, these are not people that are hovering around on the edge. They're not uninitiated Christians. They're people that have started on the Christian walk and gone some way down that road and then willfully are turning away and saying no. They are few. I do know some. I know a few people. And I tell you, I, I am afraid of discussing things with them because I do not want to hear them declare with their mouth 
that they're rejecting these things. I don't want to make it worse for them. You know, you just, I just feel like I don't know how to engage with somebody like that because I don't want to hear from them and I don't want them to articulate a denial of the Lord and a refusal of the Lord. So, you know, there you go. That's where I think we're at. So the answer is, can you lose your salvation? I think, I think the answer is, you know, yes, you can. If you, if you, if you are a mature Christian, you walk somewhere, and there, and there is a clear denial and refusal and a, I'm not accepting, you know, the, the, the provision of Christ and the cross, and I'm turning away from all of that, and I'm rejecting the Spirit of God in me, hardening my heart and rejecting the Spirit of God, but I think, yeah, well, what, so what, what is left for you? That's what these passages say. What are you going to do now? You're going to wait for another Messiah? You're going to wait for a different kind of salvation? There's just the one, you know? There's just the one. This is it. It really is take it or leave it. Um, but no, you can't lose your salvation through your own folly, through your own discouragement, through your own, oh, God, here we go again. I've gone and messed up again. I've got entangled with sin, and down I go again. There's so much grace, so much mercy, so much encouragement. Lift you up again. One of my favorite passages is in Proverbs. It says, the righteous man falls seven times. I mean, this is the righteous man, okay? The righteous man falls seven times, but he rises again. Uh, there have been many times when I have come down, bang, flat on my face in the gravel. A spectacular boom, you know. <laughs> down he goes, oh dear, you know. <laughs> but the righteous man, it's not the falling, it's the getting up. The righteous man gets up again. Because the Spirit of God is like a cork. You know, you can pull that cork down and hold it down, but the moment you release up to the top again. And that's what the righteous man, righteous woman is like. That's the spirit of God in us, lifting us up, restoring us, taking us back to a place of repentance, bringing us back to a saviour who is only too willing and too ready and able to forgive. Okay. So, yeah, so just to conclude, I think that's where I'm at. I don't want to remove the jeopardy. I think... It's helpful. I think it is right to be to value what you have in your salvation and to be, you know, and to fear have that little bit of jeopardy. Not not just take this for granted and think. I think you know. I mean, I don't want to stand here and say you're all saved. You're all going to heaven. It doesn't make any difference what you do now. Eat, drink, and be merry. You know, have a great life. That's not right, is it? There should be some sense of, okay, now I am a child of the light. Let me walk in the light. Now I am filled with the Holy, Holy Spirit. Then let me walk in holiness. You know, now the word of God is enlightened to me. Then let me live that. Let me feed on that. Let me be a little Christ, which is what Christian means. Let, that, let his image form in me. So, you know, that's why you've got these encouragements about not being dull of hearing and bucking up your ideas a bit and pressing on to maturity. Okay, so we are going to press on to maturity. So verse 9, 
Beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. So let's move on to those better things, shall we? We are convinced of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust and, uh, to forget your work and the love which you've shown towards his name in having ministered and still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize a full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. I'm not going to read the rest of it. I'm going to just skip a little bit of it there. Look, he says work and love are better things that accompany salvation. Gain a full assurance of hope. Gain a full assurance of your salvation through serving other people, ministering to the saints. You guys are the saints. Minister to one another. Serve one another. You know, people sometimes say, oh, you know, I want to be filled with the Spirit. I don't feel filled with the Spirit enough. You know, this, you know, you know, when you give out, God gives to you and fills you up. When you serve the saints, when you serve in the Lord, when you give yourself away to other people to give to them, God fills you up. Have you noticed that? That when you, I don't know, do something, somebody says, can you please do this, can you please, and you do it, and afterwards, whoa, you know, you feel on top of the world, you feel like, you know, this is great stuff. You feel full of the Spirit. So if you want to be filled with the Spirit, go and empty yourself, pour out something, by serving and giving, and you will be filled. You will, be, you will gain great assurance and great um, hope in your faith. Right, so work, apply effort, don't be sluggish. That's what that's saying. Through faith and patience inherit the promises. We will be like those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He gives his example here of uh, Abraham, um, who, um, you know, who believed God. That's a, another whole sermon there. Um, and we're going to get to chapter 11, where we've got numerous, numerous, numerous people who through faith and patience have, have exercised their walk with God. Do you know the promises of God? Do you know what you're believing for? In 2 Peter 1, it talks about God's precious and magnificent promises. You must know the promises of God. You must know what it is that God has promised you. What has God promised you in terms of, you know, from the scriptures, in terms of promised you, promised every believer. In terms of his presence with you, in terms of his strengthening of you, in terms of his encouragement, in terms of his walking with you, in terms of his carrying you through each situation, in terms of his revealing his will to you, in terms of that so sweet and precious indwelling presence of the Spirit with you. We've just been singing about it, haven't we? With you day and night, waking in the small hours of the morning and knowing God is with you and that you're loved and that you're cared for and that you're provided for. Do you know those promises? Find them out. Strengthen yourself in those. Build your faith up because in the end, that's what it's about. We believe in those promises. We believe in the one who has promised. And the promises are always bigger, aren't they? You know, what was promised to Abraham, we are still... Uh, living in the good of that now, what was promised to him. Right, I'm going to finish on this. There's a mixed 
metaphor at the end here, so you're going to have to really use your imaginations on this one. Verses 19 and 20. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. So think, first of all, imagine, first of all, a ship's anchor, you know, a big iron anchor with a big heavy chain. That's a ship's anchor. That's enough to anchor a ship, right? This hope is an anchor for our soul. So, you know, the metaphor is that the soul is the ship, okay? Riding through the um, storms of life, okay? And where is your soul anchored? There is an anchor, and it says here that we are, Sean Stephos, which one enters behind the veil. So that is a reference to, you see, if you're a Jew, you know this immediately, but, you know, for us Gentiles, we need to just, you know, get the interpretation. The holy of holies, all right, the most holy place in the tabernacle, and then it was mimicked in the temple when the temple was built. The holy of holies, there is a veil across it. Okay, a big heavy, this is a big heavy screen. Um, not, not a net curtain, but a, you know, something a bit more substantial than that. But a veil that comes down. And um, incense is burned on this side so that the smoke and the smell drifts through into that Holy of Holies. In the Holy of Holies there is the uh, Ark of the Covenant and the presence of God. The glory cloud of God is sitting there on that, um, on that Ark of the Covenant. And once a year, after many sacrifices to protect themselves, the high priest is able to step behind that veil and minister to God directly in that presence. So, you know, so that's how holy the place is. Right, so again, I told you it's mixed metaphor. So you've got to imagine Jesus now as a high priest, able to enter into the most holy presence, bring in your anchor <laughs> with him, and putting that anchor down there in the very presence of God, in the very place where God himself dwells. That anchor goes down, bang, imagine a great iron clang as he puts it down. And you're, at the other end of that chain is you. Your soul is at the other end of that chain, a boat tossed about here and there and everywhere. That's where your anchor is. Now, do you know that for your life? Do you think about that? Do you think, first of all, you are anchored? that you're secure, that it doesn't matter what storms rage, because there's plenty of storms raging, aren't there at the moment? Plenty of them. You are anchored and secure and firm. The Lord Jesus himself has placed that anchor, and that anchor is in the very presence of God, not in the physical tabernacle or temple, but in the heavenly places. That's where you're anchored. So, be secure be firm. Let me just um, encourage us now with, um, there's, a, there's this great passage at the end of Jude. Should we have the, the uh, band come up? And um, we're just going to, uh, I, just wanna, I just want you to be really secure and really firm and really know where you're at. This is how Jude, Jude's one of those books in the Bible, very small book in the Bible. Some of it's really weird. Sometimes you can read it and you think, what? What's that in there for, really? But these last two verses is what makes all the difference, isn't it? Have you ever... Oh, that's another thing. Where did it? Right. <laughs> these are the last two verses that I think, you know, you could grab this one if you can't get anything else. So this is how he ends. Now, to him 
who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy, no shame, great joy, to the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forevermore. I mean, that's the way to finish a letter, isn't it? (laughs) He who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before himself blameless and with great joy. How about that, eh? That's the way to end, isn't it? That's good. You know, Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. That's what it says here in Hebrews. He started something in you. He's able to bring it to completion. He is on that job. He's on your case. He is bringing you to completion. You are not a work completed yet. You're still a work in progress. So cut yourself a bit of slack. Don't beat yourself up all the time. Just get up and keep going. And God is at work in you, bringing you to maturity. That's the strap line there for this passage, isn't it? Press on to maturity. So let's stand, let's worship, let's set aside everything that's going to hinder us. Let's shake off any sense of failure or shame or I'm not good enough or, you know, put all of that aside. You are good enough in him and every obstruction and everything that would be a cause of failure or shame is removed in him. He is the great high priest. We're just about to get back onto that subject again in Hebrews. And let's worship and celebrate and give thanks together. Thanks, Paul.